find something you love to do and keep doing it. And I think success is exactly that. And something I think about every day, that every day is a day that I should actually enjoy. Like I should get up, be excited to have that day. I call myself an endless pull of optimism. So it's going to go right because we're going to get it right. And like, no matter what happens, we're going to find out the solution at the end of the day. Andrew, welcome to the show. Everybody, this is Andrew Smith, who is a software engineer, solutions architect, someone I used to work with and a friend of mine. And he is now the co-founder and CEO of Swapped, the offline personalization tool that's taken the world by storm. Welcome, Andrew. Hanson, thank you for having me. Thanks for having me as well. Seed, really excited to have this conversation with you guys beyond. All right, Andrew, do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Yeah, so I'm very extroverted, probably one of the more extroverted people. Definitely love talking to people, love being updated on family, friends, <laughs> updates, stuff like that. What do you like in people? Don't you find them annoying sometimes? Oh, yeah. People can be annoying, that's for sure. But what I like about discussing with people and everything is just understanding where they're coming from, understanding what's up, what they're up to. I think everyone has some golden nuggets to share if you know how to ask the right questions. Really, everyone? I find that everyone. Uh, suspicious, <laughs> but sure. <laughs> it, C just looks like he just came from a meeting where he dealt with some people he did not want to deal with. <laughs> Hence the yeah. question. I recently hosted, it's not really a large party, but decent sized party, I would say. And I was nine pretty people, annoyed. to be specific. Right, nine people. And I was pretty annoyed in the end, especially after the fact, during the party I was enjoying, yeah, love seeing people, including Hassan, seeing people well, in my house. Why would you have to call hang, that single of that out, man? Hanging out in my place. My, my wife cooks some delicious food. Everything's great. But after the fact, I was like, why the fuck did I do this? This is such a waste of time. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty tired afterwards. I have to clean up everything. So I'm in between, I would say. I enjoy hanging out with people up to a certain point. But after that, I just find really tired. Yeah. That's an interesting way to put it. It's a waste of time. What is <laughs> what is worth your time is my question. <laughs> no, because I feel like selfishly, I got what I wanted after two hours, which is a quality mm -hmm. time. We had good food. We chatted about life. We got our most recent updates about each other. It's time for you to go home. Okay. So you're ready. <laughs> you're ready to just close down shop. Yes. This is what it was. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Introverted. Why did you not enjoy watching me drink that disgusting concoction of red wine and soy sauce? I would say that's the only part I enjoyed after two hours. But yeah, that was a part of a drinking game we were playing. Unfortunately, the punishment was to drink a rather upsetting concoction. Yeah. Yeah. Ew. <laughs> yes. Gross. Ew. And it's made by yeah. your by your girlfriend, right? <laughs> that's right. It hurts that's the, extra. Uh, oof. Yeah. Oof. That's rough. It's unfortunate. I, I guess one last thing, I picked this question because I, I sometimes struggle with sympathizing with people's stories, meaning that I'm really focused on efficiency. I think uh, sometimes I don't want to spend extra time. Like Andrew said, there might be nuggets from other people's stories, but I just have a hard time to spend the time actually find them out. I guess to both of you who are extroverts, where did you find that? I don't think courage is the right word, but where did you find the <laughs> kindness? to both open up yourself and also spend the time to find the nuggets from other people's stories. Cause, cause like my natural yeah. inclination is I'd rather spend that time for myself instead of listening to other people. That's a differentiator, right? Because it's socializing with someone because the way you made it seem and sound is like, that is someone that wants to socialize with you because they want to unload like something mm -hmm. onto you. Whereas I don't find that to be like extroversion. If I'm not mm -hmm. ready or not in the space where I want to take on emotional load and somebody wants to tell me like a story about how bad their day was, then when I ask them how their day was and they shrug or something like that, I'm like, oh, cool. Let's change the topic. I won't go into more of the deeper stuff right away. And I think that's but like sometimes I will. And if the person really wants me to and opens up then I will as well but I think like emotionally 
opening up with someone is different than like your typical extroverted conversation. Like a lot of extroverted conversation is literally about nothing. Like why is the grass? It really is. Like, yeah. Or like, how is your day? Like light conversation. But that's the part I find annoying. I'd rather just skip to the core, which is what is life? Because those I think is the juicy part. And I find it's pretty annoying for us to have to find a strategy to lead into the meaty conversation. That's something I struggle with. I just love how Seed comes in with these loaded questions and statements, <laughs> just drops it on the chat. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a spicy episode. Obviously, you're doing this startup thing, which is blowing up and taking the world by the storm. But we're also interested in to learn your origin story. So where does the Andrew as a person story begin? Yeah, sure. Grew up around... Massachusetts, like half an hour north of Boston, town called North Andover. I was always like really interested in tennis growing up in the beach. Was always at my beach house in Palm Island, Massachusetts, which is like a really nice town an hour north of Boston. And always really devoted to tennis. Was first singles my last year at my tennis of tennis at my high school, as well as like the club captain for our elite tennis program, actually where I met my founder as well. And I think those two things really drove, yeah, I think those two things really drove my early childhood, beach and tennis. Wait, so you were, you met your co-founder at tennis back in high school? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. We'll get back into that in a little bit. Wait, I'll dig into the tennis part a little bit because I'm actually trying, both hands and I are trying to learn tennis. I'm actually trying to find a coach. What's, what's special about tennis that draws you? Yeah. So I like how. It's very strategic in general. It's when you're playing someone else, you're analyzing their skill set and finding out what your skill set is and then how you could beat them with your skill set. And that's what the whole game is. So you have these best of five sets. You're playing against someone for at least an hour and a half. And it's up to you to figure out with the tools available how you can overcome this cliff, which is the person you're playing. And... Sometimes your skills are going to be way worse than they are other times. And getting into that game and being able to understand how to overcome mental challenges that come up the entire time, because you're always second guessing yourself, you're always questioning every single move you make. Combine that with you have to be really physically fit because you're sprinting for at least an hour and a half. Then it's the exact way that I like pushing myself so that's why i was so into it and unfortunately haven't been playing as much anymore stopped after college but honestly fell off a cliff in terms of skill level after college too since then but still really enjoy playing every now and then i I love the answer andrew i think it's such a it's what i call a master's mindset right like when you ask somebody a question about pretty much any competitive sport i love how your answer was about mindset and strategy and not about, oh, I like to swing my arm really hard and the physical aspects of it. Cool. Growing up, small town, smallish town in Massachusetts. But looking at resume, there's a lot of entrepreneurship going on, not just right now, but throughout the years, right? Especially because you're pretty young. So where does that drive come from? Because not everybody trying to start their own business. Right? That's not really a common thing. So where does that come from? Yeah, I think I've always been groomed for the entrepreneurship life. Like my mom in general has always been a self-starter and an entrepreneur. And I've always wanted to do the same thing. And just being when I was and she was pretty well connected in Boston. So when I was 17, like I started at a startup and the startup had five to eight people. It was like really small, an agency in Boston. And I worked there during school, like for three years after that. And it went from a five to eight people company to it got sold last year for they had 500 people as a company. I don't know exactly know how much they got sold for, but it was a pretty huge company. And just being a part of that from my really early years, like right after graduating high school, going to Boston every day for a typical nine to five, working for an agency, doing website development, stuff like that really helped set me up for success and also maybe realize like I wanted to build one something like this myself. 
Wait, you made that sound pretty easy, right? So my mom wants me to do it, but <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of behind that. What, like, why? First of all, why did she want to I want you to put on this path? And uh, my mom tries to make me a piano pianist, right? <laughs> but I refused to play it after two years. So, what made you stay on it? I think it wasn't as much like my mom wanted me to do it. It was more like I was given an introduction through my mother, like to someone at an early age that was like CEO of a company and got in at an agency as like an intern and then ended up proving my worth there to be able to actually develop sites and stuff like that by myself. I think it was more like the introduction that then became me working at this startup. And I honestly think it was just some of the most fun times of my life, like being 18 to 20, 17 to 20 years old, for whatever reason, working at that like smaller company, growing it, and then seeing multiple small companies growing and then either get acquired or Clavio close to IPO, hopefully. Every single time it's been like some of the most fun things in my life. So after the ADK group, I also went, which is the agency I was at first, I also went to this company called Resilient as an intern in college. And Resilient, when I was there, got bought out by IBM, got acquired. And again, one of the most fun times in my life, like all these people were making a lot of money. Everyone was really happy about the acquisition. I was just in the atmosphere and going through like successful acquisition was fun. And then of course, watching Clavio go from not many people knowing it to being extremely successful, another really fun time. And I guess one thing that one of the most important things to me is that I'm always enjoying what I'm doing. And I knew that this is something that I wanted to do. As Clavio like grew up, I was, and I was ready to do something. I always knew it was going to be something on my own. Cool. Makes sense. Yeah. Andrew, I'm curious, how did you get into computer engineering? It looks like that was your major in college, right? We talked about how entrepreneurship's always been something you've stuck with since earlier in life. What about computer engineering? Yeah. So computer engineering, I'll attribute that to actually my, I've always wanted to computer science, but like always interested in programming from like a really young age. But the reason why I did engineering actually is because I loved physics in high school. Physics was my jam and my physics professor died actually like the year after I graduated high school, which was really sad. But what ended up happening was I graduated from high school and or in my physics class, right? So in my physics class, my teacher, Mr. Green said, if you're doing anything science related, put an engineering after it. If you're doing biochemistry or chemistry, do chemical engineering. You're doing biology, do biological engineering computer science, computer engineering. And that always stuck with me. Like this physics class is something I really like to do. I want to do computer engineering. And honestly, I was much better at physics and circuit design and electronics than I was computer science. I'm actually like, I would consider myself in Northeastern to be very average at computer science, but I was definitely talented comparably at circuitry and electronics, which... I was really surprised that towards the end of your sort of college life, it seems like you founded Friends Up. And uh, was that your first foray into serious entrepreneurship? And what's the story? Yeah, sure. So Friends Up was an app. You just install it. And back in the day, 2016, QR code technology wasn't enabled on your camera. So basically what it was, you generated a QR code for that contained data for your Facebook, your Instagram, your Snapchat, your whatever you wanted, your phone number too, you scan the code and you add someone's phone number in your contact list or you add them on Facebook, add them on Instagram. Snapchat's an a way of doing that. But the other ones, you'd add them on. And then you'd see your history of who you've added, when you added them, where you added them. Cool. It seems like you have a long history with QR codes. And we'll probably get back up to that. But uh, this was, was this your first serious startup? Would you say it's tough to say because I was still in college. Like I was in my fourth year when we started this and Northeastern does five years because of their co-op program. But I call it I, every time people ask, I always say, oh, I did a victory lap. But in reality, Northeastern makes you do five years. But I like I never say that I'm like a 2x founder. I always say this is like my 1x founder mission just because Friends Up was like a great project that we got a thousand users on. But ultimately, we never, that's a lot. Yeah. But ultimately, we never put the groundwork in to make it like a company. There was nothing to shut down. 
for instance. Like it was gotcha. like an app and when we wanted to shut it down, we just stopped working on it. And eventually right. Apple just took it off the store. But it wasn't, yeah. Yeah, so it was a trial run in entrepreneurship and working with somebody else and building a product zero to one and taking that to market, right? It was never like a mature business with real PL and investment and some kind of a plan to grow into the future. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I know. Yeah, it was one of those things where I didn't quite understand what it took to get to the next layer. And I was so confused. I never really understood it. I was like, how do you then go from here to there? Like, how do you take a product and then bring that to market and make it viable and get people interested in it? And I never really understood that. I think we underestimated ourselves. I think we should have just kept going with it because we were really good product leaders. And I think having really good product experience and being able to develop things like that would have worked for us very well if we had a helpful investor, which we unfortunately couldn't find. Or a co-founder that was a, an expert at go-to-market or something. Yeah, yeah. We, I don't think we were as far as, off as we thought we were back in the day. And one of the people that we really expected, respected that was an investor said, hey, go work for a large company instead. And I ended up taking a job at Oracle. My co-founder did Google. And I honestly didn't really like it at all. I left Oracle very quickly. Whether it did great things for my career or not, I don't know. I'm just not as big into larger companies. That's what I found. Not big into larger companies. That's a nice title for the episode. All right. So that actually leads to the next question pretty well. So you left Oracle. So Oracle is your first job after college. Yeah. And then you choose to go to a much smaller company especially then called Klaviel, which is all three of us work there. But why did you pick Klaviel? What's special about Klaviel that's attracted you to join? Yeah, so what happened was I was like talking to a bunch of different people about what companies to join. I had a few on my radar, like Klaviel was one of them, Drift was one of them. And Klaviel didn't have their Series B yet, which I liked. So I liked the thought of joining a Series A company. And I got introduced to one of my... One of my like friends at Oracle, he was a manager there and he was also the eighth person at Seismic. I don't know if you ever heard of them. They were, they're a startup in Boston. Like they do note taking for sale. They're like a sales software startup in Boston. They've been around for a long time now, but he was hired number eight. So he was really well connected in the community. And he said, hey, give my friend a call. See what he thinks about whether you should join or not. What he thinks about Playview. And unprompted, I asked him, this question, what do you think the best, hottest startup to join in Boston right now? He didn't know what I was thinking. He said, Clavio, hands down. And that really made me just make the leap immediately. <laughs> what did you, when was it? It was 2018? It was when early 2019. Oh, okay, cool, cool. Yeah, nice. I think we got our Series B, like, honestly, it got announced like the week I joined or something like that. Like, nice. Oh, I hope you accepted the offer. They were like, that's it. Andrew Smith is joining. Let's sign it. Series B, baby. Yeah. So obviously you work at Clavio for almost two years. Oh, sorry. Almost four years, three yeah. and a half years. Then you choose to start this company called Swaps. So what, where, where did the idea come from? So it came from just talking to a bunch of people in industry and realizing that Nobody has a plan or strategy around offline acquisition. And there were so many people I talked to who would Sorry, be... could you define what is offline acquisition? Yeah, sure. So basically, as a business, you want to acquire new customers. And it's really important to lower what they call your CAC or customer acquisition cost. And the way you can currently acquire new customers is either by marketing on a Facebook or Instagram or just like organic search, like SEO. But one other way that you could do it, one other way that you can lower your CAC and one thing that brands are doing already and they don't realize that they could lower it doing this is by leveraging the offline world to generate more customers. So right now you have someone with retail presence or someone with a pop-up or someone at an event. And if you think about just like as simple as a pop-up, you'll have a pop-up there. You, If you're a brewery, you'll bring your pop-up to the brewery if you go to brew fest. You let people try your beer and then they walk home and they say, oh, that was good beer. Maybe I'll find it in the store one day. But you, 
you don't know if they did. If they had a reason or a way to capture your information and remind you that you could purchase or incentivize you to purchase in store next time you see them because you give them a discount, now you can start lowering that customer acquisition costs. And similarly, if you sell the beer in store, if you label on the beer that you get $10 online credit, but when the person purchases in store, that could help you lower it. And then also another strategy would be if this is your first time shopping in the retail store, then you get some special incentives. So basically incentive-based offline and personalized offline shopping behavior can help lower the barrier of taking one of these customers because about 92% of people that walk into your store or see your product will not purchase your product. So basically we're trying to hire that number. So 92% of people won't purchase. Can we make that 80%? Yeah, obviously that's a very valid problem. If you can spend a minute describing what Swap is, what's the solution to this to our listener? Yep. So Swap creates in just a minute, literally the landing page, the integrations, and the QR code. So if I scan a code, then I land on a page where a reward is defined for me personally, based on either my spending behaviors or my interactions with the brand, or if I'm new to the brand, then I'll just get like a welcome pop-up. And it also coordinates, so it coordinates data to understand who I am by making requests to my Klaviyo account or my Shopify account, whatever I use for my online data collection makes the page for me, the scanner, and then gives me the offer as well. And Swap coordinates all of that with the QR code. Pretty magical. Right. So one example I think Andrew gave me when I asked him a similar question before was, you go to all these concerts, right? And the bands and the organizers have very little actual control and information of who's coming to these concerts and who's engaging. And now you can just put up these QR codes right on posters and things like that. And people can just scan them, sign up, express interest in engaging in exchange for some kind of immediate incentive. And then now the bands understand their audience way more and have a customer list that they could then sell to and communicate with. Yeah. And for the artist space completely, the problem is just like even larger because in the artist space, you as the artist get paid pennies of the thousands to millions of dollars you're making. You're making pennies off of it because you're the person that's paid last. So the artists can make money through D2C customers. And that's the majority of the way they're going to make money because tours they're paid last. Even the merch booths at the tours that they have, they're still taking a lot of cuts off of it for selling through venue-approved merchandisers. Artists get nicked and knacked every which way. And places like Ticketmaster, Live Nation, or not Live Nation, just Ticketmaster, don't give the data to the concert, to the artists about who goes to what concerts. So it's a very intentional system. The money's supposed to stay away from the artist's hands, but swapped is one way that artists can remediate some of that pain. Help collect maybe 30, 40% of the people that come to each show. And after a tour, you have now four or 5,000 fans that you can send an email to. If your average order value is $50 a purchase and you send and 20% of the 5,000 people buy, you're making $50,000 off that one email. And now all of a sudden, instead of making $50,000 for the entire year, you're doubling that. Yeah, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. But I'm curious, where did the insight come from? At what point was it clear to you that this was a big enough opportunity that you could build a business on? Yeah, so it came from a few different things. So the artist insight came from a friend of mine, David Puckett. He actually also invested in the business. He is the drummer of We Came As Romans, but also owns his own agency called Hyperculture Marketing Group. And... First and foremost, the artist angle came from him, but the retail angle came from all the customers I was talking to at Clavio. A lot of customers at Clavio would constantly complain about not having this data translated because I was leading up our, and I created our, I wasn't leading up when I left. I created though the enterprise solution architecture team at Clavio, and I was talking to 
the biggest brands Clayton and I talk to all the time, the ones with the big retail stores, none of them knew what they were doing when it came to offline. And forget just collecting email addresses, but I wanted to think up a strategy, a future-facing strategy for after you get the email address, there's so many more things you can do from an offline perspective. And that's what we're trying to bring to the world. Cool. And what's the current status of the business? What, uh, what does the product look like and how are things going? Yeah. So going really well where the product is, the product like beta is done. We have over 30 customers, which is awesome. We got all of the FIFA world tour events, like the FIFA world cup events, like the viewing parties that they made are all using swap now. So we I have saw that on LinkedIn customers. today. Super yeah. Cool. And we have, yeah, congrats. We have some Thank you. And we have some big customer announcements for Q1. So we're going to roll out with some larger brands. And yeah, the thought around it is to continue working. And right now we need to hire. We're focusing on hiring. have found some people that I really haven't locked anyone in yet, though. But hiring is number one priority. Cool. And... I'm curious, what is the, like when you say the FIFA watch parties, right? Yeah. Is there like an official organizer for that? What does that mean? Anybody could organize a FIFA watching party, right? It's Anheuser-Busch. So they're organizing the FIFA watch parties because they're the World Cup's biggest sponsor. But you can imagine being a beer brand as the biggest sponsor for the World Cup in Qatar where you can't drink beer is disappointing. So they're trying alternative ways outside of Qatar to make money, which is the watch parties. The way they're phrasing it. Sorry, go ahead. What do you mean? The way they're phrasing it is don't come to Qatar. Just watch it at home. Go to... Where you can have beer. Yeah. Just go come drink beer, please. So who is your co-founder? How'd you meet? And what's the story? You mentioned uh, tennis. Yeah. My co-founder, his name's Trevor Brown. We actually met. We, I think he was in middle school. I was like early high school through that elite tennis program. And what ended up happening was... We played tennis. We like kept in touch lightly through the years. Saw him in college once. Didn't really see him much after college. He moved to LA. Like he literally was like really deep into the retail world. And I didn't talk to him much then, but his company, he was like the director of ops at his sunscreen company and they use Clavio. So he would have me do meetings with them and his team. And when I was going out and thinking if I could do this on my own or if I needed someone, the one thing that always stuck in my mind was I need someone that's as enthusiastic about this idea, as optimistic as me, but also understand, like also someone that I know can cover my tracks. Because one thing that I know about my working style is I work extremely quickly. I'm always like doing everything at once. And the problem with that is that I don't like backtrack and make sure all the checks, all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. And I've run into some issues before, but I don't necessarily want to fix that problem either because it enables me to do a lot at once. So the way that I've figured out how to fix the problem is by having a co-founder, having someone to help me out and someone to cross those T's, dot those I's, as long as I'm cognizant that I do it. And the person that I'm working with knows I'm going to miss things. It works, is what I found out. Interesting. And that seems more like a working style and personality compliment, right? You're looking for someone who's more detail-oriented, who can fill in on the things that you tend to maybe gloss over, someone who can make sure everything's done right. What about the skill set? Were you thinking about, I'm good at technical stuff, I can do X, Y, and Z, but I need somebody else to do this other set of tasks who's passionate about doing it and is is good at doing it? Oh, yeah. So that was also important. So the operations and the implementation, that's a really good point. Like the other thing that really sold me on him was things I don't want to do. Anything operation-wise, like all that stuff puts me to sleep. And also, I've always been on the go-to-market, didn't have as much interest in implementation. And one of the first conversations he asked me was like, he was really excited about support and how we were going to implement and our customer chat channels. And I was like, hey, like, I don't have any interest in this. (laughs) So I actually love that you do. And it makes a really easy divide where it's like product can go to market and then 
support and implementation and ops. Which made Makes it sense. easy to break out. Yeah. And for a startup, just as a follow-up, what does operations really mean? I feel like with bigger companies, everything needs to be operationalized, if you will. But yeah. when it's a two-person company, what does that mean? There's actually a lot of checkboxes that you want to think of. For example, random things like getting your trademark, having health insurance, having a CRM where you can find your leads easily and understand your pipeline and understand what you need to hit in order to continue growing and feel comfortable with the hires you're making. So there's a lot of that goes into that goes into it. I think operations are really necessary for any company at any stage. If you don't if you don't have a solid footing in terms of like how much you can grow without shooting yourself in the foot, then you're gonna have a difficult time when you realize you scale too quickly. Can you elaborate on that? What is the scenario that uh, you scale up too fast without having a solid foundation of ops set up? Yeah. So let's say you overestimate your pipeline and you think that you have enough headcount for another hire, but the hire that you bring on brings you from 22 months to 19 months when you predicted that you'd stay around the same. Now, all of a sudden, it's, oh, I made this extra hire and I shortened my lifeline because I overestimated my pipeline and conversions. Right. In terms of the wrong. Yeah, that's pretty interesting because that's the side I don't think about at all. For me, scaling up just means to have a better schema in database and shard it more effectively yeah. and, and handle the ingestion of data. But yeah, what you said definitely makes sense. One thing that we're noticing now is that a lot of the companies that have grown in 2020, 2021, that took like crazy high valuations, a lot of them are starting to either close or lay off crazily. And you're just... I think what we're seeing in tech right now is more of a backlash of, hey, these crazy high valuation rates and the way that the market perceives tech is always going to be a thing. So let's hire as quick as possible and burn cash as much as possible when in reality, it, having discipline and understanding the exact amount of hires that you should have based on your burn rate, all of those things come into play when building a business and forgetting about them or just like assuming the best is not a smart idea. And I think a lot of people are learning that right now. I actually want to push back on that a little bit. I think, I think the companies are actually pretty smart about overhiring during the basically free money period because uh, don't you think, this is a pretty cynical, but uh, thinking from the capitalist perspective, right? It's much easier to lay off people compared to hire people, right? Like the cost to them is pretty much zero if they just choose to, obviously there's reputations, but in terms of the capital costs, they much prefer to have the problem of having to lay off people compared to if this this boom lasts for much longer than expected to be in the <laughs> in a situation where they cannot hire enough people, right? So they'd, they'd rather to bid on that side to have this problem that's easier to solve. We're talking about two different sizes of companies. I think you're talking right. about Meta and I'm talking about like a startup because at a I startup see. stage, that's detrimental. and. Yep you're shutting down your whole business. Whereas you're right for meta, it's, they might just want to burn the capital and, and they might just need to hire or, and they don't want to have that problem. Like it, it's right. just a different stage of the business. That's a very good device. Yeah. Yeah. I remember earlier days at Clavio, I think it was Series B when they announced the big funding round and it was back when Clavio was still small enough, they will share the actual pitch deck to everyone. And I yeah. remember clearly AB was saying, AB was the CEO, he's the CEO of Clavio for our listeners, but he was saying basically funding around is not a proof of success at all. That's just a thought to whether the business is doing well. It's just a catalyst for us to do better things, right? Clavio is more like a traditional business, even though it's a tech company, right? You choose to be, remain profitable for a very long time and then actually proved the PMF before they went out for capital, which is a very interesting way to, to be companies, the old-fashioned way. Yeah, yeah, I think they did a really good job there. And we sold a percentage of our company off, but we're not planning on selling any more off until we have a really solid PMF. And that's why at the end of the day, we're gonna, we're gonna win. We're gonna know what's so, going so on. So you're saying, exactly if, I, want. So you're saying if, if I want to invest, you want to take the money? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. Get out of here. <laughs> cool. Come back during our seed when we're ready.
No, I'm oh, kidding. Oh, I'll make an exception. I guess whenever seat. he joins, it would be the seed round. <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh, oh. That's like a good one. That. Yeah. That's a that's really good one. That's a good one. Cool. All right. Moving on to the last question about swapped. So what's the future yeah. plan and ambition for swapped? Yeah. So basically, I think that there's a huge change in the way the world's working. Mm. And I think we're going to see it more and more over the next five, 10 plus years where people and the way brands market to people in general is going to have to completely shift. So Facebook and Google right now, we're already noticing some serious changes from like their profitability standpoint where they're realizing that their advertisements aren't as effective anymore. And it doesn't make as much sense for brands to put their money into getting these kind of acquisitions anymore. And I think what's going to end up happening is a gap. There's already becoming a gap, but there's going to be a major gap in acquisition channel and getting your product out there. And right now, what I'm noticing is that people are trying to fill that gap of a lack of online acquisition through third-party data channels with in-person events and pop-ups and stores and trying to get the brand in your face rather than having it shoved in your face because your phone's listening to you. Mm. And I think that as brands keep growing and growing, there's going to be this huge area where instead of doing this in this traditional way, using these ads that force your phone to be creepy, you're going to want to get out of your house. And there's basically just going to be a lot of different tactics and methods that I think we're going to explore in terms of getting brands more and more customers as more and more customers are losing potential exposure to these brands when Facebook and Google ads become less of them. All right. Last yeah. question for this section. We always ask this to the founders on our show, sure. which is what is success to you, right? Obviously you want to build a large company. That's the obvious answer, but what actually drives you? What is success to you as a person, as an individual? Yeah, I actually had a really interesting discussion right after my the startup that I was at. It's called it was called Resilient, got acquired by IBM. It was with this guy named Bruce Schneier. And he is Mark Zuckerberg of security, like the type of guy that like when Obama was president, I was working for him, like the type of guy that would get called by Obama to answer some cybersecurity questions, like very big in in that world. And I went to his office and I asked him like what he thinks I should do to what drove him to success and where I could mirror it. And his answers really stuck with me. He said, instead of, I was expecting him to say, get a PhD right away or be working in this field or do this and that. And instead he said, I do security and I'm really good at security because I've always loved security and cybersecurity and learning about it. And if you don't do what you love, you're never going to be an expert because you don't love doing it and you're never going to have a great time like enjoying your life. So find something you love to do and keep doing it. And I think success is exactly that. And something I think about every day that every day is a day that I should actually enjoy. Like I should get up, be excited to have that day. And of course, there's going to be harder parts, more strenuous days than others, but the ultimate goal and what I'm working on is something that I should be enjoying. Just to push on that a little bit, if success is a function of how much enjoyment you can get out of your life, why don't we just focus on making the best drugs possible that could make us really happy and really feel the enjoyment? Yeah, like why not derive, why not hack our neural systems to achieve that feeling instead of working on something else and deriving satisfaction that way? I think there's a lot of benefits of having satisfaction from building something. I feel like what you just referenced is like, it's like the type of satisfaction and enjoyment I'm talking about is the enjoyment that comes from working on painting all day and then stepping back and seeing your house or whatever you're done painting. So that was a lot of good work put in. I really enjoy like this outcome. This is awesome. Like what a good day. Whereas if I do, I feel like the enjoyment that you're talking about is if I go get wasted, like I'm really enjoying it. And if I could just continuously be like in that state of mind of him wasted but i don't think that type of enjoyment is comparable 
That's, I don't think that even if we did hack our neurosystems, I don't think that you could actually be in a state of mind that's positive for so long without everything in moderation, I think. So if you're doing something like those drugs that make you really happy, then you're, of course, going to crack. You brought up two points there, right? One is the difference between happiness and fulfillment, right? I think I'm trying to do the best with my words here, but drugs can make you happy in the moment. They can fake happiness, but it's fleeting, right? It's not really attached to something. Like in hindsight, very few people will think back and be like, man, I missed that one time I got really drunk. That's what I want to do more of with my life. Whereas fulfillment is usually like longer lasting and deeper and more profound. Like you look back and you're like, man, I'm really glad I built this thing. And it's like a more subtle satisfaction, like more long lasting version of it. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Say yeah, it seems like keyword is sustainability. You can keep doing this compared to burn crash. I also want to push on that a little bit before we jump to the next section. Sure. Being a cynic like me, I always find it's too dreamy to have a notion that you can find your passion and just keep enjoying doing what you do. I think it's the opposite. If you always find that you actually never find your passion. Like it's not something on the ground, you, you shop around and find it. It's actually you, you start doing something you don't enjoy and you get good at it. And it's a self-fulfilling loop. And that becomes your passion, right? It's basically something you can take the challenge and then improve on yourself, right? Instead of something you can find. Do you think there's some truth to that? Or you, you think you're born to be good at something and you need to find it? That's a good point. Like my love of startups and getting into this didn't come from just like me being born. It came from me working at a bunch of startups and smaller companies that ended up being successful. And I really love being there. And that's where that came from. So maybe you're right. Maybe it's something that I worked on and ended up finding myself in a place where I'm comfortable and confident and can take this sort of leap. But yeah, I'm just trying to think, bringing this back to tennis. You're right. I played tennis and I got good at tennis because I played it so much. But I guess the question is, is how do you go from I am just as good at tennis as I am basketball, but I decided to go with tennis and this is why. And, and now I'm like fulfilled and now I'm enjoying tennis and it's what I'm happy doing every day. So like, where does that differentiator come? And I think it comes from identity as well. So thinking more on it, it's, you can really easily change your mindset by shifting your identity of yourself in your mind. So if I say I'm the best tennis player and that's who I'm going to be, then I'm only fulfilled and I'm only enjoying things if I'm a really good tennis player. And if I say I'm a CEO that's running a company that's going to be very successful and is very successful, then that's the identity I have. So I almost think you're right. It's like the self-fulfilling prophecy 100%. But it's also how you identify yourself being. It's the story you tell yourself, right? Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Let's move on to the next section, which is open discussions. So Andrew actually sent us this article. I don't know if Hansen had time to read this, Brief. but it's about, about the entanglement-based quantum key distribution. So by the way, I, I told you this, right? I, I was actually a physics major back in college. And what's uh, your minor? Mm -hmm. See, just so our listeners know. <laughs> Yeah, it's a running joke that I keep saying I'm a philosophy minor on the show. But yeah, so I actually studied physics back in college and I definitely enjoy uh, the abstract thinking of physics. This, mm -hmm. Although I'm a more like a Etonian guy, but what you brought up here definitely interesting. Do you want to briefly summarize what this article is about? Yeah. We can have a brief discussion about it. Yeah, I'll summarize what my take on it is. And I'm curious to see what your take on it is and why I think it's interesting. So basically... Entanglement-based quantum key distribution. What it is, trying to put a signal that went from China to Austria, and they're also putting one in space as well to eventually to have all their messages do this kind of encryption. But it's an encrypted signal where packets are sent with quantum particles. And the key is that when it's observed on the other side, it's observed in this specific state so they know that the observation wasn't intercepted. But if I was to be someone to hack you, when I intercept a quantum particle, the quantum particle is observed. And when it's observed, it's no longer valid because I now know that it was observed. 
because quantum particles change upon observation. So the part that I'm trying to wrap my head around is how does a quantum particle know it's observed? So is it light <laughs> refracting on the quantum particle that changes its state? Is it like a human perception of the quantum particle that like, no, is everything just fake? And when I look at something that's not quite real yet, like it then changes what it was. Like I'm just, I haven't studied any of quantum physics or anything like that. So I'm just confused and I just love talking about it. So file this entire conversation under the three woefully disqualified, un underqualified guys talk about something they don't understand, except one of the guys actually majored in physics. So I guess two very unqualified guys and one slightly qualified person talking about this. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like you're getting yeah, to the I crux am. of the like quantum, one of the, one of the core confusing aspects of quantum physics, right? Which is what is an observation and why does observation decohere and interact seemingly with quantum phenomena? Right. I think the article is about specifically, what's it called? Entanglement-based quantum key distribution, right? Yeah. Which is, my understanding is this idea that essentially you have some kind of middle station distribute entangled pairs of photons to two stations that are trying to talk to each other. And that those photons essentially set your private keys, I think. And that key is then used to encrypt communication between the two stations. And the idea is that when you distribute your key that way, it's impossible for any third party to observe what that key is without changing what that result is going to look like and having the party know yeah. that somebody else is snooping on them and hence creating a theoretically unhackable connection, unhackable secret connection between two parties. Yeah. So that part is really cool. Don't get me wrong. But I got stopped at part A, which is like the fact that the observation itself changes the result. <laughs> yeah, just just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't believe. Yeah, that. nobody fucking knows, and that's why I stopped studying physics is because I find quantum mechanics so messy compared to the classic the Newtonian physics. And I was half joking, according to the system of quantum mechanics, the reason why the observation will help the state to collapse into reality is because superposition, which is the name of the show, is because of the fundamental state of anything, which means your observation will hope, <laughs> hope reality to collapse, right? That's just the assumption. And there's no reason why behind it, almost. Just like Einstein said, basically the assumption, the hypothesis is light remains the same speed in any frame, in any reference frame. That's just the hypothesis. Then we derive things based on that, right? Then the observation confirms the theory that derived from that hypothesis. And there's no fundamental why, almost. For Wait. Yeah. See, I thought the whole light speed thing is relativity. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's and the relativity same. and quantum physics are two different systems that we still cannot seem to Consolidate. reconcile. But I'm saying right. the it, it's the same reason why in Einstein's system that light speed is remain constant in any frame. It's the same reason, similar reason that in quantum mechanics, this is the assumption that everything's in superposition. You're and it's, saying this is yeah. like a, a fundamental assumption that there Correct. is no deeper why behind it, but it's that assumption is what holds the rest of the theory. Correct. Correct. It's an and, axiom and, or whatever it's called. It's right. just like something it's you the, hold to be true without proof. It's the fundamental hypothesis, right? And similar thing in Newtonian physics, which is basically the clock is synced across different re reference frames, right? It's just one of those... Hypothesis you build upon to an empire of understanding, basically. Andrew, I don't know if, how deep you wanted to go on this, but I think what you're describing is basically a wave function collapse, right? So are you familiar with the double slit experiment? No. Okay. Not. So we'll see where this conversation goes. <laughs> but basically, there is a very famous scientific experiment that a lot of schools actually do to demonstrate the quantum weirdness. Yeah. It's called a double slit experiment because it's basically, imagine this, right? You've got a laser beam, right? Mm -hmm. Red laser light shining through this, imagine like a cardboard, piece of cardboard, right? That it blocks all the light. Yeah. And then you cut two slits on the cardboard. So now light can travel through those two slits and then end up on a screen behind it. 
What do you think that screen would look like? What do you think the light would look like on a, a screen behind two split two slits? I think it would look like probably like distorted in terms of you'd only see light around where the two slits are cut out, maybe. Right. That's what you'd expect, right? Yeah. But here's what it actually looks like. So if you go on, I'll share my screen so you can see it. Yeah. You see the bottom double slit? Oh, weird. Why does it look like that? So actually, we have a very good theory around why it looks like that's caused by interference, right? So imagine that light is a wave, right? Imagine that you're doing the same thing, but not with photons, with water, right? When you throw a pebble into the lake, waves come out, right? And then let's say you put it through two slits. The waves getting through those two slits will start interfering with each other creating constructive and de destructive interference. And this is what you, the interference pattern, essentially the crevices and ridges of the waves overlapping with each other, right? Now, this is not the weird part. The weird part is what happens when you let photons go one by one, right? So when initially physicists thaw, saw the pattern of the interference of the light, they're saying, oh, it's just the photons going through both slits interfering with each other because there's the particle wave duality, right? Everything behaves like a wave and then it hits the screen and it creates this wave-like pattern. Yeah. Okay. So some physicists decided to try letting photons go one by one, right? Now, when you're just emitting photons one by one, what do you expect to see on the other screen? Basically like whatever the previous result was, except cascading by each photon. And that's what they saw. But what's weird about that is when you have a bunch of photons flooding through the wave, the gates, right? The slits, you can yeah. explain the pattern away by saying the photons are interfering with each other, right? There's waves going on in two sides and they're interfering. Oh yeah, because that was- But the when you theory, let photons go one at a time, the photon must have gone through either the left or the right, and there's nothing for it to interfere with. Oh yeah, that's right. You would expect to see two clear slits behind it because it there was no interference. It either went through the left yeah. or the right. Okay? That is weird. So all the physicists were absolutely just stumped by this, right? Like they've designed experiment after experiment trying to prove that something rational is happening, but they cannot explain why this is happening. So eventually yeah. they just decided to amend their theory to make this possible by saying, Oh, actually, all things, all particles are described by a wave function, right? And the photon actually went through both slits at the same time. It's a superposition of states, right? Huh. And it's interfering with itself through time because it went through both sides at the same time and interfered with itself, which doesn't really make sense from a classical physicist's perspective. And Time is linear perspectives, yeah. And here's where it gets sense. really weird, and I think it gets back to your original question about what makes observation the thing that like messes up the quantum encryption. Yeah. It's the same thing here. Physicists try to understand where that photon went. So there's a whole family of experiments called which slit experiments. All kinds of ways for people to detect which slit the photon went through. Yeah. Right? People put sensors on both slits to try to see if we could detect a passing photon. As soon as they put any kind of contraption to try to understand which slit that photon went through, the interference pattern it, disappeared. It became two clean crazy. slits with no interference. That's so nice. And here's the really crazy part. You could say, oh, if you have a contraption that's messing with the photon that's passing through the slit, obviously you're like messing with how the photon moves and hence you're destroying the interference pattern. Yeah. But here's what's really weird. People got really clever with these witch slit experiments. So they designed this yeah. contraption where they would shoot one photon into some kind of energized crystal, which would emit two entangled photons. So they would let one of the entangled photons go through the slits normally. Yeah. They would take the entangled photon and analyze that one to try to tell which state this photon is in. But here's the really yeah. clever part. They made a longer path for the entangled photon to go through, which means the detector detected which slit the photon went through after the original photon already went through the slits and landed on the screen behind it. 
Yeah. So they're measuring retroactively which slit that photon went through. So in theory, they're not messing at all with how that photon behaves. Yeah. But it still collapses. That wave function collapses and there's no interference pattern. I so that so invites very interesting thoughts. Like somehow the photon knows that in the future it will be observed and hence it cannot behave like a wave in the present. Interesting. Again, That's follow so all of this under a guy who has no idea what he's talking about and just saw yeah. many YouTube videos about this. But yeah. there's a whole like school of thought, which is a little bit wackier and out there called retro causality, right? It's this idea. And this kind of plays into the whole like simulation theory of the world, right? If you were to build a computer system to simulate the world, what's the most scalable resource, resource saving way to build it? Just in time rendering, right? So basically, if you think of humans as the oh, players yeah. of the world, then you don't render the whole world. You wait for the agents to see what they need to see, pause the agent's process, go backwards and trace back all the things they need to see, collapse them into a certain state, and then let the observer observe it. In that frame of mind, the universe exists because we exist. That is creepy. And when you look up in the sky, wow. you're looking through a time machine. You're seeing yeah. galaxies and stars that formed and maybe died millions of years ago. If you believe that school of thought, you could think that the moment you looked up in the sky, millions of years of history, births and deaths of civilizations, star systems, clusters, galaxies were caused by you in the simple action of observing that part of the sky. That's an interesting take on that wow again none of this is real science it's just a theory yeah What's making this even, take on that too making this even more confusing for you but by the way there's a lot of interesting history if you are interested in kind of the, the history of how the initial phase of quantum mechanics is built out there's yeah. a lot of argument between einstein and planck's and uh, how do i pronounce this guy's name the employee deployee the French guy who found the wave function. Oh, yeah. The guy who says everything's a wave. You're yeah. a wave. I'm a wave. Right. Yeah. yeah Anyhow, but there's a lot of back and forth between those guys, and it's pretty funny to watch. Smart people arguing with oh, each true. other. Build upon that double slit experiments. There's another very important experiment to, to understand if you're talking about superposition is I think it's called Stern clock experiments, which basically is an experiment without going into too much detail because I don't really understand fully. You should look up yourself. But basically, I think it demonstrated the orientation, basically the polarization of angular momentums in any system. So basically, it's a way to prove, it's, it's a experiment hinted that the quantum properties in any system at the atomic level, right? Then people build up on that, run a bunch of even crazy experiments using polarization, which basically there's kind of device where you can let the little light through when there's certain polarization, right? And basically what they can demonstrate is if you let 50% of light of, say, vertical polarization through, right, then yeah. you align it with another, a different polarization, you would think 0% go through. That's not true. Actually, 25% go through, <laughs> which basically proves that the natural state of superposition in this experiment. Then the most right. advanced kind of experiment right now is the recent Nobel Prize winner, right? Basically proved quantum entanglement to the best way that human being can to this point, which he himself doesn't believe in. But this was another interesting, interesting yeah. article to to look at. But yeah, I mean, this is a lot of mindfuck going on with quantum mechanics. And to bring us yeah. back to the earth a little bit, two interesting fact about the the, uh, the article you sent is that uh, I don't know how to pronounce this in English actually. Mishus? Is it Mysius? Mysius? Is it named after some Greek god or something? No, it's Chinese. This system is Chinese. Oh, what the heck? It's Mozi. Oh, Mozi. Yeah, it's Mozi. So Mozi is a very famous Chinese philosopher back in the, well, which is very similar to similar time period as Greek philosophers, but he's known for the first real scientists in Chinese history. And he actually did, I think, the earliest documentation about the pinhole imaging, what it is. So basically, like a small hole, you let some light through, you will be able to form an image, right, at a smaller scale of what is showing on that side. But yeah, he did a lot of interesting experiments and documented a few thousand years ago. Very smart guy. So that's why the whole system is named after him. That's called Mo Zihao. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
Interesting. Anyway, so I'm going to move up to a totally different topic here. I'm curious about an aspect of the founder life that I don't hear a whole lot about, which is mental health. Andrew, what's your experience been with mental health and being a founder? Does it feel lonely? It feels like there's a lot going on. It feels like it can be a very stressful and overwhelming experience and maybe an isolating one. And all the stories we hear out there is about the either the agony and the glory, right, of starting a company. But what about mental health? Like, how does that affect you? And what do you have to say? Do you, yeah. and most importantly, do you want to kill your co-founder now? <laughs> no, I have a great relationship. He's not going to say yes on record, Seed. <laughs> I have a great relationship with my co-founder. No. So I think one thing that you're right, like, it's disregarded in a lot of different stages of life and in a lot of different roles in general, like mental health is usually just not looked in on or talked about. So I think it's important to always ensure that by mental health and everything is always in check. One thing that, you know, definitely affects you as a founder, especially it affects you in normal everyday life in general is like imposter syndrome is this so what ends up happening to me mainly is like imposter syndrome with the product is the product where it needs to be to actually provide value and be useful and it's tough because some of that is good but it's one of those things that if you're too highly critical then you're going to drive yourself nuts and also one thing that i would give advice to other founders is just don't look down so there's a lot of scary passing you can go downwards on if you think too hard about like negative things. My one proponent is I always try to be like, I call myself an endless pull of optimism. So it's going to go right because we're going to get it right. And like, no matter what happens, we're going to find out the solution at the end of the day. My specific mental health has been good through this process like it's different having going from like a large community of people and having status it almost felt like going from senior year of college to or senior year of high school or freshman year of college all over again starting this and it's felt like that a little bit so far where you're clavio you're top of the world in the e-commerce shopify apps like these kind of things clavio has a lot of good positions and, and a lot of sway and just by being there, you're surrounded by 1500 plus of people that also support you and know your mission and you're all corralled into doing the same sort of thing, caring about the same sort of stuff and go through very similar experiences. Whereas you're, if, when you're a founder, none of that's created yet. So like you said, like loneliness, it definitely does take into effect when you're the only one that really understands some positions that you're going into. I think it's nice having a co-founder, like working with co-founder that's remote, that doesn't exactly work on the same stuff you do if you split up tasks, which if you're an efficient company, you would. You don't have 10 different, 10 to 100 people, depending on your role, doing the same thing you are. And all of that, I'd say, is played like a role. So I'd say in terms of like mental health for founders in general, I've seen people be harder on themselves than I have been, but like the imposter syndrome combined with any bit of pessimism and then also letting loneliness or whatever gets you, those things are all dangerous. It's really important as a founder, since you get a lot of stress coming your way to, for me, ensure that the same patterns I had at Clayview are still my thing. So I still wake up at the exact same time, even though I don't need to, because I might not have a meeting. I still try to wake up before 7am and get to the gym. And I still try to have the exact same kind of schedule. Of course, you end up working later more often, but it's something that you take day by day and you still find your time to enjoy and time to unwind and things like that. So that's like my two cents on mental health for founders and like some general advice that I give like to any aspiring founders as well. So as an aspiring founder and for a lot of listeners out there, are there questions that people should ask themselves before they decide to found a company? What would make somebody a good or bad fit for being a founder? Yeah. So I think having a good, it's, it's almost like the same questions I would ask myself before like getting into a relationship, which is, am I happy as a person or am I in a stable point in my life? 
am I, there's some basic things that I think give me an edge and that have helped tremendously that don't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily think it's like getting eight hours of sleep a night and being comfortable with travel and having a specific routine where I go to the gym and make sure all of my health is keep kept in track. A lot of those things where you wouldn't necessarily think of as a founder, like you'd think of a founder working 48 hours and not necessarily having time to do that other stuff. I don't think that's necessarily the case for everyone that wants to be successful. I think being successful doesn't necessarily come from, and it shouldn't come from like close to burnout work status. It should come from working hard and staying diligent and disciplined every day. In order to work 48 hours a day, you have to, it's superposition is how it works. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. All's well and good until the wave function collapses. Yeah, you can't observe it. So what's your take on work-life balance? I'm definitely the kind of person who doesn't really care about work-life balance. And we interviewed a lot of founders who think that's pretty much a myth. And you just rant sometimes, pretty much all the time as an early stage founder. Do you agree with that? Do you not agree with that? What's your take on that? Yeah, so having a work-life balance as a founder is you always have to be on and thinking about your company to some extent. You're not going to have these times where you're able to completely shut off and like never think or talk about it. Do I think that I talk about Swap more or less than I talked about Clavio when I was at Clavio? Like thinking objectively? Like, no. I think Clavio was always on my mind when I was at Clavio as well. Do I think when I was at Oracle, do both of these stick out to me more? Yes. Like the amount of time and energy I put into thinking about working at Oracle was very little outside of. That's one thing that like a big company does do well, like a, like an Oracle or whatever, where at, I guess it depends on your role. But I think some roles do this well where it's, hey, you get in at nine, you end at five, you clock out. And that's where you, and you can tell like big company transitions because especially like Clavio, for example, because you notice that like responsibilities are getting more narrow and thin. It's okay. Your responsibility is this. You can define it on a small piece of paper, but that used to not be the case. It used to be the case where your responsibilities were everything and you need a whole book to define like what you did at Clavia. And it's like the same thing. I don't think the work-life balance at Swapped is any more difficult than it has been at some of my hardest times at Clavia. I have pulled 2 a.m. nights for Clavia before, and I'm assuming most people have that have worked there. And there's there's 2 a.m. nights to work every once in a while. You have to get used to it. And as long as you can find time for life and time for enjoyment, Outside of those busy times, because I think work comes in waves as well. You'll have one month where you're working a lot and one month where you're working less. And as long as you can recognize that and enjoy the time that you have when you have it, you should. Cool. Makes sense. I know that for a fact you've spent 2 a.m. nights out with Clavio. <laughs> what do you mean by 2 a.m.? My, my, my standard is 5 a.m. I don't actually sleep. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Seed may not know how to work 48 hours, but he knows how to work 24. Yeah. Cool. We're in this chatting with you. Fully expect we uh, invite you back. We invite your Series A and uh, really look forward to seeing you have more, even more success in this field. Thank you, Anson. Thanks, Seed. Thanks for having me. Nice speaking with you tonight.